Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with Coach Connor. Let's face it, bike technology has become complicated. Gone are the simple days of external cable routing and easily adjustable stems. Now bikes have batteries, and changing your handlebar height can take an engineering degree. With that said, it's not all bad news. Some innovations have made bike maintenance easier. Now you can adjust your shifting with your phone, and the forever troublesome front derailleur is going the way of the dodo. On today's show, we have master mechanic Leonard Zinn. He knows all the tricks and shares many of them in this episode. Joining Leonard, we'll also hear from bike fitters Andy Pruitt and Larry Meyer, and mechanic Glenn Swan, who after decades of working magic on customers' bikes, admits that some of the modern technology is making him wonder if it's time to retire. So put away the tubular glue, pick up your drywall sanding sheets, and let's make you fast. While the basic principles are the same, there's a big difference between coaching professional and age group athletes. Professional athletes are the elite, the 1% of the sport, the best of the best. These athletes devote every day to training and demand the most from themselves and from their coaches. In our newest release for The Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel, we explore the art and science behind coaching professional athletes. Check out The Craft of Coaching Module 13 at FastTalkLabs.com today. Well, Leonard, welcome back to the show. It's been a little bit since we've had you, but really excited to talk with you. Thank you, Trevor. Good to be here. So always love it when you're here because as you know, you are a master with bike mechanics and I am probably an embarrassment to the bike world of whenever you see me ride on my bike. So I always learn a ton from you. But what we were really interested in discussing with you is the nature of the modern bike. So actually what motivated me for this, I still have a 1993 Bianchi, which we can talk about the comfort of the bike and some other issues with it. But I'm pretty sure if somebody completely disassembled that bike, just took everything apart and you handed it to me, I could reassemble that bike in under an hour. You could probably do it in under 30 minutes. With a blindfold on in a dark room? Probably. If you completely disassembled a modern bike and handed it to me and came back 10 hours later, I would probably be in the corner breaking something, swearing and cursing with a quarter assembled bike. Modern bikes have gotten much more complicated. I do kind of wonder if we're at the point where most people couldn't do all the repairs on their own bike. You really do need to go to a mechanic now. But what we were hoping to discuss with you is some of the challenges of modern bikes and your tips and tricks on how to keep your bike functional. Great. Look forward to it. But Leonard, any initial thoughts on this, where we're going with modern bikes? Are they becoming as challenging as I think, or am I just not keeping up with the times? Yeah, I do think, Trevor, that we need, what is a modern bike for you? I will say, let's set the scene a little bit deeper here. Yeah, you're waiting for me to say anything built after 1990. (laughs) (laughs) Anything with through axles? Uh, I haven't gotten there yet. You haven't gotten there yet. I was just pointing out my most current bike is 2004. 14, so we're coming up on it being 10 years old. But there certainly has been a change. Through axles, electronic shifting, the whole headset has changed. So, you know, Leonard, what is the, the challenge that people are, are facing overall? Is it, is it getting to that point? 
Well, it depends on if you're talking about fully assembling it yourself or one of the issues that can be with changing stems and stuff with completely internal cable routing and internal hose routing and all that. That is starting to be beyond most. But once it's actually done and rideable, as far as adjustments and maintenance goes, in many ways it's actually easier, I think, than adjusting and maintaining your old 1993 bike. Interesting. So we'll dive a little into this and I'm going to mention we only have so much time. So we're probably going to focus a little more on road and gravel bikes here. Mountain bikes are a completely different beast. We, Whatever, we Trevor. Them periodically. Leave me the mountain biker out of the conversation. Oh, you're here. I didn't even notice. I know. Here I am sitting in the corner, <laughs> just like your mountain bike. Yep. Well, my mountain bike is from 2009, so it's even older. Before we dive into the different parts of the bike, let's hear from Dr. Andy Pruitt and Larry Meyer with their thoughts on modern bikes. They are complicated. I mean, when you have to upgrade your software once uh, once in a while on your bike, you know that it's complicated. The original Specialized Venge, you had to turn it upside down and take a plate off of the bottom bracket to plug it in and charge it. Mm -hmm. So bikes are not simple uh, they're not what Leonardo da Vinci imagined when he and when he supposedly invented the bicycle. So they are complicated. I think having a relationship with a, I even like to have a relationship with a specific bike mechanic, not just a shop, although that's a great place to start. But I do think you need to have a place that they know you, they get to know your bike or bikes. So I'm all about having a competent, true professional mechanic that you rely on. Oh, I agree. I, I think uh, it's so important to have a, a really good mechanic that you count on um, just because even with gravel bikes, you know, things are just getting complicated. Uh, TT bikes, I mean, integrated headsets, the stack uh, just goes on and on and on. So you really have to know your stuff. And, you know, when you get across a, a bike fitter that doesn't quite have the experience, the bike fit's going to be long or it's going to be confusing um, because if they're confused with just the parts, and the complications that can go along with that, then it's going to be a long time. So that brings me to, so if you're, for time trial, you mentioned how complicated they were. I think doing time trial fits on a, on a fit bike, on a fit jig, where you're not having to change out all the bars and all that stuff, you can accomplish the fit mm -hmm. and then have the bike built yeah. to those dimensions. So let's start with, one of the big changes in the last probably 10 years is internal cable housing. Yes. So internal cables, if you don't have to do anything with them, they're fine. They're amazing. <laughs> as long as they just stay internal and nothing needs to be replaced or fixed or, or, or you don't need a different stem length or bar width or height or any of those sorts of things. So... The complication comes in if you've got to route it yourself. And so within the frame, there actually is a tool that's quite inexpensive as tools go to do internal routing, both in the frame and in the stem and bar. And it's called the Pike Park IR dot. Now it's, it was IR1. Now it's IR1.3 we're up to. Each generation has a new thing that, They've discovered you need to, to have. One of the things in the new IR 1.3 is that, is that it has a, a connector 
that sticks in and into an end of a housing or a hose and and it's double ended like that so you can so if you're replacing your brake hose or your cable housing you can shove that into the old one and then shove it into the new one so that and then just pull the new one through with the old one which before what you had to do was basically pull out the old cable run a new cable in or if it was a hose cut off the other end of the hose run a cable through it then slide the slide the hose or the cable housing onto that cable but the IR 1.3 if you're putting in a completely raw frame like it there was a time when the, the very first uh, internal cable routing there was an internal tube inside the bike and you could just stick in a cable and it would go through the tube that those days are gone there's it's just empty in there and so so the this tool is a bunch of different shift cables that have different ends. On one end is a magnet, and the other end is either raw cable or it's a barb that screws into a hydraulic hose or it's a little thing that clips into the end of a Shimano Di2 electronic wire or it grabs the end of a fatter wire or a fatter hose. And you have a big magnet that you can first guide the first magnet through, meet, then push in another one from with a magnet on the on the other end of that other wire, and you stick that in, and then and then the two meet inside, and then you can pull them both out, and then whichever one. So it's if you're putting in cable housing, you just have raw. You pull out the one, so it's now in the frame that has the the raw end of the cable on it and you just slide the housing onto it you could also do that with a hydraulic hose but you may contaminate the inside of the hose with what's on the cable so so you can then screw in the use the one that screws in the barb and you pull through the hydraulic hose or you pull through a di2 wire and similarly with aero bars i mean like fully carbon aero bar system with wires and everything going fully internal in that i mean it would just be impossible to just feed that through yourself and then this tool does it there is actually another trick that i use when all else fails or i don't have a this ir 1.3 and that's a vacuum cleaner (laughs) so really yeah (laughs) i've never tried this so you just take string it's got you know not like stiff string but pretty flexible soft cotton string and you push it in one hole and then the hole that you want it to come out at you put the end of the vacuum over it you know usually with maybe the edge part for the vacuum and you suck that string out and then on the end of the string the little cable ends that you crimp onto the end of your cable so i take one of those and i it's a cup shaped thing Mm -hmm. i clip the closed end off i slide that one end of it onto the uh, string and crimp it on. And then I slide the other end onto the end of a cable, crimp it onto that, and then I can pull the cable through. And then once I've got the cable through, then I can feed housing over it or hydraulic hose over it or whatever I need to. That's a great idea. Yeah, the crimping onto the string, Leonard, that's the real deep pro tip because you were talking about the, the park internal routing IR tool. We're up to three now. Um, that little doohickey that you can butt and two hoses together with a little connector, that thing is invaluable because 
I have spent so much time trying to electrical tape hoses together, trying to do anything to yep. bind a hose so that when you pull the old one, it pulls the new one with it. These little tools can really make what's a difficult process a heck of a lot easier. This is one of the things I've learned about bike mechanics. I'm sure there's going to be the rest of the conversation of there's just these little things that make such a world of difference. Because I can tell you, every time I've done the cable housing or at least for, for years when I was doing the internal cable housing, my solution was I just had to take the the cable, feed it through the frame, and keep doing that until I finally saw the end near the hole that and I was trying to get it out of. And the little crimp on the kink on the end to try and make yeah, it pop out. Yeah, and then I would sit yeah. there with a the tweezers and try yeah. to pull it out. It would take 20 yeah. minutes. Dental yes. picks work yes. pretty well, yeah. just so yeah, you know. Yeah, so I actually bought some dental picks to, to use for that. But I tried the string once, so oh. I had this idea... But all I did, so there's that little thing that's, that's huge, is I tied the string to the, the cable. Mm. Oh, yeah. And when I tried to pull it through, the string just came right <laughs> off of the cable. So that idea of crimping it yeah. is yep. beautiful, and that pulls it through. To go back real quick and talk about how internal routing through stems affects changing out stem lengths and angles, I think that a real pro tip here is make sure that you're really dialed on your bike fit and your bike fit coordinates before you engage with a bike like this. If you're buying a new modern super bike yeah. that has everything super internally routed, make sure that you're comfortable on your old bike or get a bike fit on your old bike and transfer those measurements or even get a bike fit with a fitter that uses a fit bike that is infinitely adjustable and transfer those coordinates to the new bike because that really is something that you just want to do once. You don't want to be going through a trial and error, wider bars, narrower bars, longer stems, shorter stems, so on and so, so forth. A lot of times people don't get professional bike fits because they are expensive, 250 to 500 bucks or so. But... If you're then paying somebody to multiple <laughs> times re reroute your internal <laughs> cables in order to keep adjusting your stem length as your angle or whatever as you discover the problems with your bike, then uh, that starts to be pretty irrelevant <laughs> after a certain point. So you bring up a really important point that a lot of people don't consider. And I, my brother bought this really expensive Specialized about five, six years ago that he was excited about. But he likes to travel with this bike and discovered with all this internal wiring going through his stem and everything, when it came time to put the bike in a bike case, he couldn't. Yeah. And so you have to realize this might look amazing and it's great that, you know, your stem is lined up perfectly with your frame and it all looks beautiful, but then you're going to get a plane, you have an issue. Yeah. If you want to adjust, as you said, if you change your handlebar height or need to put a longer stem on, A, you have to go to a shop to do that. B, you're going to have to redo all the housing. So that ability to adjust on the fly yes. gets a lot harder. So yeah, be aware and, of that. And it, like I mentioned to Rob, the taller you are, the more problems you have with getting a bike in a, in a bike case mm -hmm. for flying. And so a smaller person might be able to just leave the, leave the stem and bar as is, rotate the handlebar and stick it in the case, but but a bigger person, it's just not going to work, and they have to get take their handlebar off or or their stem off or both, and then you've opened up a can of worms. And then if you try and avoid it, or in just doing that, you end up kinking a cable or a hose or whatever, and then you you know the whole purpose of your trip is gone when you arrive, and bike won't work. So, and you know, and in travel also with disc brakes. 
you have this vulnerability of bending the rotors during transit. But if you want to take them off, then there's big tools involved and that you yeah. got to bring along and more time. Yeah, one thing to point out on the travel side, I think that the case that you have can really make a difference, especially with some modern bikes. And we actually, we had somebody that had reached out to us, Trevor, what, week or two ago asking this question serendipitously. I don't even know that they knew yeah. this episode was planned. And that's, I, I think that if you have to travel with a bike and you can't, really change the handlebar position. The Sycon cases are some of the better ones out there because they allow you to pack the bike with the handlebars on. They have positives and negatives for other attributes too, but that is something that's relatively unique. As far as I know to that brand, it's not something that Thule or anyone else is doing. Yeah, and it's Shecon. It's S-C-I oh. because oh, that's boy. the Italian word for ski. She, really? Shecon is near Asiago where it's great cross-country skiing and those guys are all skiers and that's what that is about. I learned something new today. <laughs> I thought it was Scion or some Matrix reference. Yeah. Yeah. Kind, of, kind of cool. One last thing I want to bring up about cable housing that a lot of people aren't aware of. I don't care how, how nice a bike you have and I guess we're going to get into electronic shifting in a minute where this is less relevant but if you're still using the classic form of shifting, you will find that your shifting gets tougher and tougher. It gets harder to shift gears. It isn't as good when you're shifting down the cassette. Sometimes the 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 derailleur just won't move. And I've seen people sit there and try to figure out what's going on with their derailleur, what's going on with the drivetrain. And my experience is most of the time it's your cable housing is getting gunked up and the cable just can't move as well in the cable housing. And I will say before I had internal housing when it was really easy to replace your housing, I was probably three, four times a year just redoing the cable and redoing the, the housing to keep my shifting smooth. So I do think though on the modern bike that has full length cable housing, you run into issues like that less frequently because there's only right. really one, two points of entry, you know, but I suppose there can still be wear along the length. Well, there's right? also the often problem of the head of the cable, the getting eaten in, inside the lever by yep. Shimano lever, just mm. tearing up the, and, and fraying in the inside of the lever. And then you got this, got to get that stuck piece of cable out of the inside of the lever and feed new in. And, and really, yes, you're avoiding, by having internal housing, you're avoiding getting it kinked in the middle of its section, for instance, but the access for where the stuff gets in is always at the end anyway, which is out, you know, yeah. it's still outside of the bike. So. Let me ask, I got a question. This has nothing to do with our outline. Leonard, I've only ever been able to thread a brand new cable through housing. And there have been times where I have threaded cable through the housing, made a mistake, whatever, had to had to kind of back things out to redo it. Still a brand new cable, but now it's it's actually been cut to length. Do you have any tips for running something so that it doesn't fray? Because that's what seems to be the problem. I cut the cable and I try to send it back through the housing and one of those little cable threads gets caught and it starts unraveling the whole thing. Well, I think it all uppers. comes down to the cable cutter. Yes. It's got to be one of the ones that's like... Uh, parrot's beak where the mm. they were and it's enclosing the thing from both sides as it cuts so then you can just cut a real clean end slide it through if you use a 
like a dike, a yeah. side cutter, it flattens it out and then you're asking for trouble. There's the tip right there. I, I can tell you from experience, last couple of years, I was getting worse and worse and worse at cutting my cable housing. I was like, what's going on? I used to be really good at this. Mm -hmm. And then realized I've been using the same tool for a long time, went and bought a new tool that was sharp and suddenly I could cut the, the housing really well. And, and I, have, I have the Park tool, and this isn't sponsored by Park at all. I just, I know a lot of people use Park tools. I have the Park tool for cutting housing. Is that the same tool that you use in the cable or do you use a totally separate kind of like roundish for the cable itself? Yeah, I mean, quite frankly, I use... A, just a different cutter for yeah. housing than okay. for than for cable. Enough about cables. Let's throw cables in the garbage. Well, Trevor. we started to talk about stems and bars, <laughs> and yeah, agreed. <laughs> and there's been a lot of changes there. We already brought up the fact that now a lot of bikes, the cable housing runs through your bars, through your stem. You you never see it at all. So, what are Leonard the challenges now of the more modern stems and bars when it comes to to repair work to maintaining and, and also positioning? Well, I mean, we've covered most of it with the internal hoses and cables, but the other one is the bolts are always smaller and smaller <laughs> and the torque is more critical. <laughs> more and more important. The, yep. You get the torque right, that you really do use a torque wrench or you're familiar enough with, you know, like in my case, I feel like my feel is as good as a torque wrench that I know exactly on which, like to do five Newton meters, where I'm choked up on the wrench so that I can't put any more than five Newton meters of torque on it. And I don't grab it at the end of the wrench, you know, I have it right near the bend. And But really, to have enough torque that it doesn't twist, you know, you don't hit a pothole and your handlebar <coughs> drops down, but that you don't over-tighten it, and that's even more critical if you're traveling and you have to take your bar off or your stem off, and then you strip a bolt when you get there and so. a, a quick disclaimer all listeners remember you are not leonard zinn your hand and wrist might not be as calibrated as leonard's say. are you should probably use the torque wrench yeah uh, it is one of the best investments you can make i mean they're not cheap they're, they're probably cheaper than when i bought mine but to be able to say i want this to be at 10 newton meters and then the torque wrench basically stops tightening when you get to 10 newton meters I can't tell you how often I've seen teammates or had the experience myself where you over tighten and you snap a bolt yep. and then you got to go to the shop and have them drill it out yep. or seen friends in races where they didn't tighten enough and all of a sudden their handlebars have gone all the way down. Yeah. And something to point out here, I think that carbon paste can be really useful instead of just tightening things down. Oh gosh, my handlebars slipped when I hit the bump on the gravel course. I should tighten my stem more. If your stem is at spec and you're getting some slippage, it, it shouldn't happen, but it does. Then I think that a nice application of a carbon-specific paste that has a little bit of a grit inside of there can actually help that grip of the handlebar and the stem interface a lot. So handlebars, what are your thoughts on pros and cons of these? And what about aluminum versus carbon fiber and any, anything that we should be aware of that makes them harder to work with, easier to work with? Well, I'd say one of the most important things which happens with both carbon and aluminum is more and more of them are shaped in the upper section. They're flattened, arrow shape. And if you happen to, the way you hold your hands on the bar happens to find that 
particular orientation comfortable when it's also the bar is rotated to the point where your levers are right where you'd like them and and the drops are where you like them all's good but if you happen to be somebody who wants the bar rotated a little more up to get your levers higher or get the the whole feel of your hand on the lever be different but then the it compromises the heel of your hands on the upper part of the bar or vice versa where you tip it down more and then the sharp edge of the upper part of the bar is is digging in where you know you get carpal tunnel syndrome or something like that i mean in my opinion yes i i understand the aerodynamic benefits and the aesthetic benefits of a shaped bar like that but but as far as ease of working on the bike if your if your motivation is having your bike be easy to work on have it be a round bar, whether it's carbon or aluminum. Now, otherwise, you know, the other things are that if you, you can easily break a carbon bar just tipping your bike over. Yep. And it's happened to me many times, and I've seen it happen to lots of other people. Literally, bike falls over in somebody's office and it breaks the bar. So anytime you have an impact to a carbon bar, and that's something that you just absolutely do not want to have break while you're riding. Nope. And so anytime you have an impact to a carbon bar that, you know, you at least untape it and, and look and see if you see any damage and, and, you know, you can take a, a coin or, or a pen and wrap on it and see if you, the coin test to listen to the, to the sound of the, of the carbon and you, you can distinguish if there's delaminated areas that are, are invisible to the outside. But, but that's the, downside of a carbon bar is that with an aluminum bar yeah obviously if you if you damage it and you you create a kink in it you need to replace it but it's more visible and obvious and and um and anytime you crash hard on a bar whether it's aluminum or carbon you ought to replace it i uh had that experience myself and i still think this is one of chris case's favorite moments ever where I had crashed on my bike and it was the only time I ever used carbon fiber bars and I didn't replace it. And Chris and I were doing a race up Flagstaff and two minutes into the race, the bar snapped. Really? And you were happy that it was going uphill. (laughs) I was very happy it was going uphill. But the great part was I had the handlebar tape wrapped tight enough that it kind of held it on. So, you know, you could see the handlebars kind of bent upwards and it completely snapped, but I could keep riding. So I kept the race going <laughs> with my handlebars snapped. And Chris thought it was the funniest thing in the world. You should have ripped that off, thrown it away, and been that much lighter on the climb. I'm just saying, if you were a true racer, Trevor, you would have used that to your advantage. But you couldn't do it because the cable housing what? wouldn't let you well, throw it was away. It, was it internally routed, Trevor? <laughs> Fair. <laughs> so, but yeah, you don't want to be in the middle of the sprint. No, or descending. You don't want to be in the middle of anything. Coming down a descent and you hit a pothole and your handlebar end breaks off or both ends break off. Yeah. Yes. And that was the really fun part because we were racing up Flagstaff, which meant I had to descend with the broken handlebar. At least you knew it was broken. Yes. So any other thoughts on stems and bars? And I I think we, we covered a bit, but I admit the one thing that probably scares me the most about current bikes is that completely integrated stem where you basically have to use what's built by the manufacturer because I like to be able to set stem length. I like to be able to adjust it up and down, and it seems like... And rotate the bar ability. angle, too, like yes. we were talking about, and you can't do any of that. 
Trevor, how often are you changing your stem length or height or of your handlebars? Are you race by race, terrain by terrain? Do you set it differently here than you do in Toronto? No, it's old age by old age. I have a back problem. <laughs> year over year. Okay. So when my back goes out, handlebars come up. There you go. And you can't do that. Well, I was going to say, you could just flip them, rotate them so they're all the way up, but you can't do that either. Let's hear again from Glenn Swan with a few thoughts on the new stem designs. If my customer asks me to help them fit their bike, my hands are tied. It's going to cost all kinds of money to change the reach to the bars, to in effect change the stem, and those sorts of things are expensive as all get out. So these people buy bikes online, they don't have a chance to ride it, and they're kind of stuck with whatever it was that they bought. So I find the integrated handlebar and stem assemblies, even without the cables running through them, to be problematic as far as making people comfortable and efficient and effective on their bikes. They look cool, not a great idea. Tis the season for knee pain. As the summer sunshine inspires us to ramp up our riding mileage, our knees don't always keep up. If you've got knee pain, we have the solution for you. Fast Talk Labs members can follow our knee health pathway, featuring our director of sports medicine, Dr. Andy Pruitt. See the introduction to the knee health pathway at fasttalklabs.com. So let's shift gears, literally, (laughs) and talk about something I know nothing about because all of my bikes are from 2014. Electronic shifting. Is this a whole new can of worms when it comes to maintaining your own bike or... You kind of hinted at this. Is it does it actually make maintaining your bike easier? Yeah, in my opinion, it does make maintaining your bike easier. If you crash on it, it's a lot more expensive to replace. There's no question about that. But most people, really high percentage of people who are good riders, have real trouble adjusting their cable tension on a standard cable actuated derailleur. And they, you know, I never know how to do this. And they're bringing, you know, it's like, well, somebody that's used to it maybe has a hard time understanding why that's so complicated, but it's, it's relatively straightforward. People struggle with it. And there is always adjustment needed because over time the cables stretch and the housings compress and the derailleur is no longer lined up perfectly with the, with the cog. So you, you do have to adjust them over time. An electronic derailleur, as long as you don't crash on it, bend the derailleur hanger or something like that, once it's adjusted, it stays in adjustment, and that's an awesome thing about it. And and if you were to get, a say, a wheel change in a race and the cassette is in slightly different position and the shifting isn't working right, now on modern, modern 12-speed Shimano Di2, this is no longer the case, but with 11-speed Shimano Di2 and with SRAM, SRAM electronic, all generations, latest and oldest, you can adjust it while you're riding. You push a little button to go into adjustment mode, and then you push the shift button whichever way you need to move the derailleur to get it lined up, and then you push the mode button again and go back out of adjustment mode, and then you're it's adjusted perfectly. And that certainly never possible. I mean, with a mountain bike, yes, you could twist the adjuster on the shifter on the handlebar, but with a road bike, there was nothing you could do. Mm-hmm. You had to get off the bike and turn the adjuster barrel. So, and then then the 
jockey wheels are just the same. So there's no more, no more maintenance or anything different with the jockey wheels than with the cable adjusted, cable actuated derailleurs. So in my opinion, you know, you have fewer problems down the road, less maintenance to do with electronic. I will say too, another benefit of electronic to throw back to travel, like we had discussed earlier, with two fewer cables on your bike, your handlebars can rotate into a position that works in your case a heck of a lot easier. You're not fighting cables to find that perfect position in there um, where they're not going to get damaged or scratch your frame. Yes, that's true. Or even better yet, if you use the wireless, SRAM wireless system, there is no cable or the new Shimano 12-speed DI2 where there's no, the wires are only between the the battery and the two derailers. There's no wire up mm -hmm. to the handlebars anymore. But you still have those hydraulic hoses. Yep, I got those. <laughs> <laughs> One area for me though, Trevor, where electronic shifting is worse than cables is... I have forgotten to recharge my battery on more yes. than one occasion. And it's been okay on some rides because my rear derailleur died and, and I'm running a, a SRAM wireless system. So I was able to move the front derailleur battery to the back. Boulder east of Boulder anyway is relatively flat. So it's not a big deal if you're stuck in one chain ring. Well, and, and I, all my bikes have that system and I just have every bike has a spare SRAM battery in the spare tire bag. And then, because and, it happens all the time. You yeah. can't see the little the little indicator light when you're riding the bike, it's hidden under the chain stay. Yep. You can't see it if it's, it, when it tells you if it's green, yellow, red, whatever. Yep. And, and you forget anyway, because you have to charge it so infrequently, you don't think about it and you exactly. head out and then you're, it doesn't shift. But as long as you got, you know, spare batteries like 40, 50 bucks. Well, this, this was always my concern because when, a lot of my friends started going to the electronic shifting. I would raise, I go, I don't want to use it in a race because I'm worried about being in the middle of a race and battery going dead and then I can't shift. And they go, oh, that never happens. It's never happened to me. And then you wait and they go, well, there was this one time. <laughs> and then you read about, you know, Peter Stetna in the yeah. unbound gravel or whatever, you know, there's always incidences where it does happen. Yes. The other thing I've done is because with the SRAM system, you have to take the battery off the bike to charge it. So I put the battery on the charger, put my bike on the car, driven to where I ridden <laughs> and didn't. And, and the battery was 100% charged. It just wasn't <laughs> attached to my bike anymore. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> What else do we need to know? And this is where I just have to ask the questions because like I said, I've never actually used it. What are the other ins and outs of maintaining your, your electronic system? What about damages to the cables, things like that? Does that happen or is it all so internal that you just don't worry? Since they're not under tension and they're so internal, pretty much it just doesn't happen. I mean, it's I can envision a situation where you could kink it right at the rear derailleur, for instance, or maybe somehow, I don't know, maybe somehow the front derailleur, but it really, the whole thing is loose and it can move and yeah, it's not really an issue. You know, one thing to consider, Trevor, and maybe this broadens the conversation from electronic shifting into drivetrain, but I do feel like modern shifters and derailleurs are a bit more finicky. They have to be a little bit more exact in their adjustment because that spacing is getting so close between the cogs and the rear. Yes, that's true. And it's also, in my opinion, easier to adjust with electronic derailers because each step in the adjustment 
you know, you, you go into adjustment mode. So the latest systems, yes, you can adjust them with your phone, which Gen Z people are going to have no problem with. You don't even need to, but all of them, you can still adjust on the bike as well. You don't have to use the phone, but you know, it used to be that with the Shimano system, you had a junction A up at the handlebar with 11 speed and 10 speed and you go into adjustment mode there and then you bump the shift buttons. Now there's no more junction A. The adjustment button is on the rear derailleur. So you have to be off the bike. You hold the button down until it goes into adjustment mode. And then, and then whether it's the front or the rear derailleur, then you bump the, the buttons to move that one way or the other. But the adjustment bumps are very, very small and you can get exactly where you want to be. And if you're using the phone app, then it actually will tell you numerically, you know, you're out of like 16 position points, you're now moved to position four or position negative four or whatever it is. And so you can get those lined up very well. And, you know, this latest T-type transmission that SRAM has, there's the cage is now shaped differently. So the, so the jo bottom jockey wheel is lined up with the chain ring, whereas the top jockey wheel is lined up with the cog, which that was one way that bikes were hard to adjust because of that asymmetry front and rear. And now that that's eliminated, which so makes it easier. they don't do that anymore with the, the asymmetry on the... Yeah, the new T-type, there's a twist in the jockey wheel cage and the lower jockey wheel is not lined up with the upper jockey wheel. So the upper jockey wheel lines up with the cog, the lower jockey wheel lines up with the chain ring. Interesting. And so the chain angles are better and the shifting is crisper and yeah. I'll say the only contribution I have to this conversation is this great new invention where they have a rear wheel that's got a, a small cog on one side and a big cog on the other side. And when you get to a hill, <laughs> you, you can take the around, wheel off yeah. and flip it around. Then you have to invent the quick release when you can't do it in the cold because you <laughs> yep. can't, turn, can't turn the wing nuts. But now you're talking crazy, Doc. I'm not there yet. <laughs> Let's hear from Glad Swan about some of the challenges of electronic shifting. I just read an article this morning about somebody who has actually gone back to friction shifters. And it depends on, on your perspective. If you're a, a bike racer and you need instant, super accurate shifting and cost is no object, electronic shifting is great. But if you are the person who has to pay for every time your bike goes into the bike shop or who is not going to buy a new bike every couple of years and thus is going to deal with things that become obsolete quickly. I'm not a big fan of some of the, the new stuff. For my customers who are recreational riders, it's important to know that the pleasure of riding is mostly from passing through space, looking at countryside, feeling yourself move. And all of the electronics, all of the, the cool cosmetics don't really make any difference in the pleasure of riding through the countryside. So let's talk a little bit about some of the, the modern elements of the drivetrain. And you mentioned, Leonard, in our, our conversation for the show, something I don't even know what you're talking about, which is flat top chains. It's a hairstyle, Trevor. You should try it out one day. <laughs> Yeah, so there are now two flat top chains, both from SRAM. The T-type one is on the mountain bike, but the the one that preceded it is on the road bike. 
came in with what's called AXS, access, SRAM access, 12-speed shifting. And the idea, the flat top chain, it's it, when you look at it from the side, each outer link plate is flat on the top and has a normal curvature on the bottom. So it's no longer symmetrical. It used to be all the chain plates were symmetrical. And the reason for that is that now the chains have gotten so thin, the material has gotten so thin, and chain breakage, as the chains get thinner and thinner, yep. is more of a risk. And the protrusion of the chain pin is less and less and less because there just isn't enough room between the, the cogs. And so this way, making a flat top chain, they could make the amount of metal in each link be greater just by... It's, it's no longer a versatile chain. It only goes on one way with the flat top on the top. But there was another thing that they did to increase chain strength, which complicates life, and that is they changed the size of the chain roller. So the chain roller on the road access flat top chain is bigger than chain rollers have always been on every single So what is chain. the chain roller for people who wouldn't know? So a chain, a chain works by each outer link. When they punch the hole for the pin on each end, they punch it in such a way that it pushes in a like little tube, a little bushing. And the inner link also is done that same way where there's it's pushed in that's little bushing. So the outer link is flat. The inner link is the one that has the bushing pushed toward the inside. And then the roller is the thing that actually sits on your in the valley of your cog okay. or your chain ring teeth and it rolls on those bushings and that's the area that when you lubricate a chain that's the area you're interested in is getting lube inside of that roller between it and its bushing otherwise all the other rest of the lube that's on your chain all over the outside and everything is doing no good for you it's just collecting dirt but the, that's what i was going to say it's that, actually worse than no good because dirt will yeah. collect on it and exactly. then work its way work into its the way joints into the, yeah so if the roller's bigger, so the chain, it's still on a one-inch standard. So the distance between each pair of pins is still one-half inch. One full link is one inch, the same way it's always been. But now with a bigger roller, if one of the one of the ways of maintaining a chain is to know when it's elongated. And it's also called chain stretch, but chains actually don't stretch. But what happens is as that roller wears on the inside and the bushings that it's riding on wear on the outside there's more and more slack in the chain. The chain becomes more flexible laterally. You can twist it back and forth laterally, but, but if you hang it next to a new chain, it's longer. And as that happens, if you let it get beyond a certain point, then it changes the shape of the teeth on your chain rings and your cogs. Right. And, and then if you put a new chain on, then it will skip because the teeth valleys are wider and, and the teeth themselves are narrower. So you want to replace your chain. Chains are now expensive. You know, when I was racing in the late 70s, early 80s, we were paying four, four bucks each for a chain. And now they're, you know, can be easily a hundred bucks. And especially if you get, you know, optimized chains that are dipped in miracle wax and that sort of thing. So you don't want to replace them too soon because they're expensive, but you also don't want to wait too long because the cassettes are way more expensive than the chains. And with a, there's a chain gauges are now a fairly ubiquitous tool that you check your chain length with. And generally most of them work by, there's a, 
There's a little tooth, a little hook on one end that you hook over a chain roller, and then that then it's, it's a long bar that has another hook on the other end, and you push that into the chain, and if it drops in past a certain point, the chain is stretched. Well, since that one hook is, say you're looking at your chain in front of you, and you have the the chain tool is going to go to your left. So you so that first hook is hooking on the left side of a roller, and then the other end, the gauge end, is pushing down against the right side of an of a roller many lengths down the way. If those rollers are now a different size, there's no sense to this measurement. This measurement is meaningless because what you're interested in is actually the difference, the distance between the pins on the chain, not actually that distance you or or the distance of the leading edge of one roller to the leading edge of another roller so there is a pedro's tool and a shimano tool and i think maybe even park has has a tool now too where where there's three three prongs on the chain tool so the first one indexes it the same way this did but the next one indexes it now again if you're swinging the tool to your left so the first prong goes on the left side of one roller, but then the next prong goes in against the right side of another roller, and then the opposite, the prong way down at the end goes against the right side of another roller. So now that's the distance that you're looking at, is that length, and that length then would be the same on, because the chain gauge is the same on, on a flat top road chain. But anyway, it, you can always use a ruler. If you're really good eyeballs, you know, use a ruler. That's, but you want to use a long enough ruler and a long enough section of chain that you can you really can see, see, the see, see the stretch yeah. over the elongation over distance. But now you're, you're talking about something that I do understand. So this hasn't changed too much. And, and that's always been my philosophy. Yeah. Chains are getting more expensive, but if you've got a nice SRAM red cassette, that's three, $400, on your bike and you wait too long to replace your chain, that cassette is now dead. Yes. Where if you replace your chain more frequently, that cassette's going to last a, a real long time. Yeah. You always want to err on the side of replacing your chain too much, <laughs> too little. Yeah. And my approach personally, I have a crappy winter bike. On my race bike, when I, you know, I was racing a lot more frequently, I would replace the chain before it needed to be replaced. And I just put the chain aside and in the winter, that go on my, my winter bike where I didn't nice. care as much. Yeah. On this drivetrain conversation and chain wear, Leonard, are you seeing any differences in drivetrain longevity based on modern lubricants that are being used on bikes? Well, the answer is yes, but I wouldn't say it based on modern. <laughs> that there is pretty much no question in my mind that you get the longest wear with something that's very, very old, namely paraffin. But if you're going to use it, you have to be really committed. You have to completely clean your chain. So that that means getting all of the old grease out of it. And it's just not, you know, scrubbing it with a yeah. chain cleaner or, or shaking it up in a jar of kerosene or something. You, you actually have to do a number of steps to get it all out with first a solvent, then denatured alcohol than water and and then once the chain is completely clean and then you um, soak it in in molten paraffin and the molten paraffin again you have to you know you can't just put that on a stove you got to have a double boiler so you don't put it on fire or something but then once it's on there the chain no question lasts way longer and it's 
one of the benefits of a lubricant that lasts longer is there's less wear because it's that's why it lasts longer. The two go hand in hand, lower friction and greater durability. Today's episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Alter Exploration. Created by me, Fast Talk Labs co-founder Chris Case, Alter Exploration crafts challenging, transformative cycling journeys in some of the world's most stunning destinations. Amatra is a powerful tool used to focus your mind on a particular goal and create calm during challenging situations. Our mantra, transformation begins where comfort ends. This mantra isn't meant to be intimidating. On the contrary, it should be invigorating. For many people, everyday life is filled with convenience, monotony, and a lack of time spent in nature. Alter Exploration facilitates the exact opposite. Challenging, invigorating, life-altering experiences in the natural world. Alter's journeys aren't so much a vacation as an exploration of you and the destination. At the end of every day, be preoccupied as much by the transformative experience as by the satisfaction of exhaustion. Life. Altered. Learn more about my favorite adventure destinations and start dreaming at alterexploration.com. So I think the last thing that we wanted to talk about are wheels and brakes. So disc brakes, I, I'm not sure we can call that a, a modern invention anymore. But what are the challenges of maintaining disc brakes? Well, one of the biggest challenges I would say is that you can't really see the pads because it's hidden down in the caliper. And then as soon as you've ridden the bike a little bit, it's all covered with dirt and dust and everything in there. And you can't really see the pads. And pads need to be replaced. And so I would actually venture to say, because now the first disc brakes, you actually had to have the wheel off and everything in order to change the pads. Now they all are pretty much top loaded. So you can just, you can just get at them with the wheel in and no big deal. And I would argue that they're easier to change than, than pushing the pads out of the little holders in the, on, on rim brake brakes, or if you use the cheaper type, that's the whole brake pad and stud and everything on a rim brake bike, then you got to readjust the, the angle and the toe in and everything. So compared to that, it's, it's way easier, but, but determining when it's time to replace the pad, I would say is trickier. You got to be more aware and on the ball and checking for it. And then, you know, people are really worried about brake bleeding, you know, like, well, you know, the, the first disc brakes were cable actuated ones, first disc, disc brakes for road bikes, for instance, and mountain bikes. And those, those were super dependent on cable tension because as the pads wore, like any rim brake, as the pads wear, you need to tighten the cable. And, and since the spacing is so small in there, that was really critical. But the beauty of a hydraulic system is that it itself fills behind the, it brings more more fluid from the reservoir fills in behind the, the pistons. And so as the pads wear, just like on your car, you don't, you don't notice until you start grinding your pads into the rotor. You don't notice the pad wear on your car. Your brake pedal feels the same, and it's the same on a hydraulic system on a bike. So that's the beauty of it. So there's actually less adjustment to do. And generally, for road bikes, it's pretty you can go a really, really long time between bleeding, brake bleeds, you know, it's different if you're racing downhill mountain bikes, you know, and mud and whatever. But on a road bike in Colorado conditions, 
you're going to be, you're going to go a long time. People are concerned about it, worried about it. And, and yes, you do need different tools. Once you're used to it, it's really pretty straightforward and quick. But, but for the average person, you would, would do it so rarely that every time you'd have to look in my book again, <laughs> figure out how to do it because, because you wouldn't remember because it had been so long because you just don't need to do it very often. That's my question. Because breaks are so important, is that a better thing to just, you know, if you were doing it every month, I get it. But if it's so infrequent, are you just better taking it to the shop and saying, can you bleed this for me? Well, I think it depends on your mentality. I mean, you, you can definitely tell when it's bled right or not. So it's, that's not a question. Like if you do it wrong, you know, your brakes are, won't work or they're super mushy because you still got air in them. So, so you can tell if you've botched it and, and, or they'll squeal like crazy because you got hydraulic fluid on the rotor and on the pads. And if you're the investment in the little syringes and the fluid is pretty small really. And, but it's just, yes, if you don't do it frequently, you're going to have to review the process every single time. And whether that's, worth it to you relative to scheduling ahead of time with a busy bike shop to get your bike in there and have it done in time. I mean, that's the trade-off, you know, is, is if you do it yourself, you know, you at least know when you're going to do it and you'll have it when you need it. Leonard, it's funny, you were talking about more traditional braking systems and you mentioned toe-in and I had some horrifically bad flashbacks when you said that because... You know, my background is in um, cyclocross, you know, and cyclocross for a long time used uh, cantilever brakes. Never mind the the fork flex and the cable flex and, and all of that introduction. Just trying to get cyclocross brakes that worked and didn't squeal or whatever else was... Especially on carbon rim. Exactly. was so difficult. And there was almost this black magic I felt like I had of, well, if I take a piece of paper and I fold it over this many times and I put it here, then that helps me angle my pad... And that stuff is relatively Until gone. the pad wears after two more weeks. Exactly. Yep. And I do think that disc brakes can be a little bit more, you know, that initial setup. Hey, for whatever reason, you had your caliper off your fork or off your frame. You have to make sure that it's well centered um, back on the rotor so that you're not dragging a pad. But the other thing I, I do think one area that's maybe a little bit tougher, and Leonard, you alluded to this, if you do contaminate rotors or pads, then that can be a big hurdle to deal with. And I know I've personally brought some rotors back with some alcohol. You can clean off a lot of the contaminant there. You know, brake pads, if they're just a little bit glazed over, in my opinion, here in Colorado, we have such dry, dusty conditions that sometimes my brake pads will get glazed. And um, a little bit of a light sanding can really bring that power back. But if you get a real contaminant on that pad, I don't know that there's anything you can do to bring it back to life. You might be better off replacing. Yeah, but, you know, really the trick to it, the, the reason just a light sanding won't work with sandpaper is because you keep pushing the same crap back into it because it's on the sandpaper. So the, the thing to use is, drywall sanding mesh. Mm. So it's like a window screen yeah. and it's abrasive. And so then you just take your pad and you rub it back and forth on that. And the junk that's on the pad drops through the screen and doesn't go back into the pad. So even a really contaminated pad, you can rehabilitate with, with drywall sanding screen. As I fill out my shopping list, literally right now, what, what grit do you use for something like that, <laughs> Leonard? Uh, 220. 
220. Okay, I'll have it this afternoon. And, and Retro Grouch, hot tip here to determine when to replace your pads. As soon as you have sparks flying from your, <laughs> your rotors from metal on metal, you have about four or five rides when left. You, when you've lit your paraffin chain lube on fire with the blazing sparks, then you know. You're getting close. You got a couple rides. <laughs> You're getting close. <laughs> we, we laugh about this. I have seen more than one person's bike that I have helped that have been to the metal backing in in yep. disc brakes and we we laugh about it but it is a very common thing that happens and people need to watch out for it i was behind a friend who is more of a retro grouch than me we were coming down a hill and this is back in rim brakes and literally just watched the sparks fly off of his rim because he was metal on metal i heard a story though leonard did you tell this story Somebody with their traditional brakes, cartridge brake pads, had put the brakes in backward. So oh, the no. moment they hit their brake, it ejected poof, the pads out the front yeah, of the bike. Yeah, no, I knew a guy in Colorado Springs who did that. Yeah, he'd, you know, back in the day of Campanile and over record or super record bike and the, and the pad holders are open on one end yep. and they don't have a retaining screw. And, Which and, works great in the right orientation. Yeah, and he put them in backwards, and he goes down a steep hill, and there's a stop sign at the bottom and a car crossing, and he slams on his brakes, and he feels two things hit his calves from behind and sees two other things shoot out in front of him, and he's got no brakes. How, what, did he crash? What did he do? He did not crash. But he scared the shit out of himself, and he dragged his feet and you know ground his shoes down and stuff, but he... Managed to swerve. He didn't. He went through the intersection, but he didn't hit any cars. Wow. So wow. Yeah. <sighs> All right, we got one last thing to talk about. And as the retro grouch, I'm gonna say this is a great invention. the The fact that I never have to glue a tubular again in my life, I can't tell you how happy that makes me. How do you know you're a real cyclist, though, Trevor? Because I hate tubulars. I've done them enough to know I hate okay, them. Okay, okay. You've yeah, there you but go. Then you didn't understand why cyclists shave their legs so they don't have <laughs> they don't get rim glue stuck in their hairs. Yep. So let's talk tubeless. They are great, but I admit I'm still fairly new to them and I do find them challenging. How to seat them right, how to make sure you put enough of the the goo or whatever you call it in there to to keep it sealed and I will embarrassingly admit, my first set of tubeless ever, I bought two days before a bike race. I went to the bike race. It was bike race from uh, Lyons to, to Nederland, fortunately all uphill. And I didn't know, I actually didn't even know the, the, the wheels were tubeless. And they came with tires on them. So I just pumped them up. There was no fluid in them. And I did the, believe it or not, I got to the end of the race with them keeping most of their air. But when I was descending from Nederland, they just lost it all. Bummer. Bummer, So dude. what are the tips and tricks for tubeless? Okay, well, uh, sort of the overarching thing is having sealant in them that's liquid. That um, if you let it harden up in there, then you don't really have a viable system. We... Do not have tires for bikes that are like car tires where car tires are tubeless and you can leave them on there for a year and they'll generally have the same pressure a year later and that's not the case 
with bike tires, whether you have sealant in them or not. They're not gonna they're not gonna hold air that way. And yes, you know, originally when the UST system came out, Universal System Tubeless, there was a hundred percent check on every single tire. That was what was required. It had to hold air without any sealant. And so every single tire was inflated on a rim at the factory and submerged in a big tank of water. And if any air bubbles came out, the tire was discarded. And in order to make 100% of them work, you got to put a lot of thick layer of rubber on the inside and they were too heavy and too inflexible and people didn't like them. So now what we have is all these other things called, you know, various manufactured acronyms for tubeless ready, tubeless something, TLTR, tubeless, number two with bliss after, stuff like that, that are not a guarantee that this tire holds air. And they require that there be sealant in there because air will bleed out otherwise. And the sealant seating the tire, you know, there has been improvement in that, in that the tire people and the rim people are finally getting to be on the same page. But for many, many years, you know, decades, the what was called the ETRTO, European Tire and Rim Trade Organization, those people were not communicating with each other and tire fit was always an issue. And finally, the ISO latest meeting a year ago or something, the tires have to fit certain specs and they're, they're only allowed to f go on certain rim widths and the rims have very fixed specs and you don't have these outliers like, you know, stands used to have a thing where they actually changed the bead seat diameter and the height of the the height of the rim walls above the bead seat and stuff like that, just winging it, you know, and, and other manufacturers maybe followed, maybe didn't, but, and now you have hookless systems, which are like the, the rims on your car, which um, don't have a bead hook. They, there's no hook to dig into the tire to grab it above the bead. It's, it's a ramp that the tire slides up and then drops over a little drop but that's more amenable to the manufacturing process of a carbon rim and to the way carbon works, where it works great in tension and terrible in compression. So those things all mean that seating the tire, it's got to be done right. You got to have sealant in it and you got to have high enough pressure. So ideally you'd have an air compressor, but if you don't have an air compressor, you have to have one of these pumps that has a separate big old chamber that you pump that chamber up first then there's this big reservoir that then can blast a big blast because a hand pump won't generally get a tire to seat. And then once it's seated, you coat it with soap suds and you just, in your hand, holding it wheel flat, you just look for wherever it's bubbling and you just keep tipping it and swinging it and whatever to move sealant to those areas until you no longer have any, any air leakage that you can see through the soap bubbles. And then you have to ride it frequently and pump it frequently that if you leave the bike sitting, it loses air over time. And if you let it lose too much air, then it, the bead is no longer seated. Air rushes in, hardens up all your sealant. You get a big lump of sealant at the bottom of the tire that now unbalances the tire and there's no sealant to fill anything. And, and you kind of got to pull it off and start over. And so Tubeless really isn't appropriate for a bike that doesn't get used much or for a person that doesn't pay attention to their bike 
in the interim, like if you don't use it, but you do pump it frequently and spin the tires, not too many people do that. Mm -hmm. So you basically got to ride the, ride the bike. How frequently? Because so I have tubeless on my race wheels, and I'm not doing as much racing. So I might go a month without using them. Is that inappropriate? I think that's too long. Yeah, yeah. I think you. I think you need to figure on riding at least once every week and a half, probably. I would think. The lesson here is to ride more, Trevor. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. No, I think when we're talking about tubeless, too, a lot of people do struggle. They're in their garage. They're covered in sealant. They're trying to get this darn tire on the rim. It's probably one of the most frustrating things in the world. A couple tips that I have and Leonard, I'm sure that you have even deeper ones. I want to hear those too. You know, if you have a compressor, great. If you have one of these special blaster pumps, great. Regardless of what pump you have to take out the valve core and just blow air straight through the valve stem, oftentimes can increase the volume or the rate of air that's going in that can help seat. Another thing that I've seen too, is oftentimes you'll be mounting the tire onto the rim and the bead of the tire will actually be sitting on the wrong side of the valve stem. And so oftentimes you're blowing air just straight into the atmosphere. It's not even going inside the tire. So double check for that, you know, extra rim tape. Have you ever beefed up the rim bed a little bit with another wind of tape? Has that helped out Leonard? Yeah. But again, that's supposed to be a thing of the past yeah. rims made later than 2022 should be uniform completely uniform in, in size and the tires should be uniform in size to fit. But but yes, if you put another layer of the airproof tubeless rim strip, you can often get a tire to seat that wouldn't yeah. otherwise. But you made it harder to mount it on the rim because you've now made the valley taller too. Exactly. And, and what you just brought up, I thought of as you were just talking, oftentimes the newer modern rims and tires are very difficult to just mount and get the bead over the wall of the rim. And, um, you know, the tip there is to really go back and make sure that the rest of the bead is sitting in that low valley in the wheel, double check it, triple check it, make sure that it's in there because that really is the secret to getting that tire on all the way around. Because it seems as though with these modern wheels and rim strips, you don't necessarily want to be using tire levers to pry that up and over. Carbon rims can break, but I've also put a hole in this tubeless rim tape, and now you got to take everything back off, redo the rim tape. It's fairly easy to damage the bead of the tire yeah. as well and, and have a yeah. little another place that you got to get sealant to that's now on the inboard side where the sealant doesn't want to go to. So the thing that you weren't saying that's inherent in what you said is in order to have the opposite side of the tire dropped into the rim valley, when you're putting a tire on, you have to finish putting the last bit of tire bead on at the valve. You know, people generally, for some reason, tend to go the other way where they mm -hmm. start at the valve stem and they go around the opposite side, but the beads by the valve are now sitting up on the rim ledge rather than down in the valley. So the circumference that you're pushing it around is bigger than if you start on the opposite side of the valve and you make sure those beads are dropped into the center of the valley and you go all the way around to finish at the valve stem, then you're going around a minimum circumference. And if you're putting on a tube tire, then the advantage is also if you get some tube caught under the edge of the bead when you're doing the last bit, 
then by finishing at the valve stem, a lot of times you can get that to suck up by just by pushing up on the valve stem and you suck that little bit inner tube back out from under the bead. That's another reason why it's good that this whole new ISO standards came out because, because it's also critical the width of the two beads and the depth and width of the rim valley. And those are now also written in stone in the ISO standards so that there is enough room that if your tire bead is too fat for both of them to fall into the, into the rim valley, then you, it's harder to mount the tire or if the rim valley is too narrow. So those are now standardized. You know, the other thing that helps is some sort of lubricant on the bead, but not getting it on your thumb. So when you're pushing it over <laughs> the last part, if it's if the bead is wet or has some sealant on it or something, it'll tend to slide over better. But then, of course, the challenge is to not have it on the side of the tire and on your thumb so that you've got some traction when you're pushing the last bit of the tire over. Before we launch into our take-homes, let's hear one more time for Glenn Swan and some of the new innovations that he really likes as a mechanic. I was a little slow to accept disc brakes, but the freedom they give us to use different wheel sizes, different tire sizes, I think that's been a real plus. And maybe I'm going back a little farther than you're expecting as far as evolution of the bike, but the threadless headsets and stems with removable face plates has made the process of fitting much, much easier because we don't have to do anything with brakes or any of the cables in order to play with reach, stem length, or stem handlebar height. So I'd say those are two things that are definitely pluses. I guess the third one would be that the tapered steerer tube on forks has been a, a plus uh, since that lower crown race, that lower headset is a point of very, very high stress on a bike and cornering or hard braking. You can actually feel a difference in how solid the front end of the bike feels with a larger diameter right at the fork crown. So I'd call that another step in the right direction. But I'm hard-pressed to think of other things that are have been improvements. You look at all the different seat post shapes and, you know, the cable routings. Obviously, a lot of them I see as cool-looking, but not positive, not anything that makes life better for either riders or certainly we oppressed mechanics. <laughs> Well, guys, I hate to say it, we're an hour 20 in. This has been a great conversation. You've given us a lot of really good tips, but I think it is time to switch to our take-homes, our one minutes. One of my biggest takeaways would be what I mentioned about sanding your disc brake pads with a drywall sanding mesh and cleaning the rotors with alcohol, that those can eliminate a lot of squealing problems that are often the bane of disc brake users. Another is keeping up on your chain length and replacing a chain before it's too late, before you've ruined your cassette. For me, I'm going to go totally big picture here. I think that whether or not something's difficult to maintain is just kind of relative to what the person's used to. I think that we as a group are noticing a lot of these changes because we've watched these changes over time. We've seen how bikes have evolved, so to say. 
But I bet you a lot of modern writers listening to this are like, this is the way I've only ever known it, you know, and, and it, it really sets that relative nature. If you are a handy person, if you like to learn, if you like to figure things out, then there are amazing resources out there for anyone to maintain any part of their bike. And, and Leonard is, you know, an, an author, the author when it comes to learning that. So I'm, I'm glad that he has, you know, the time to spend with us. But the other side of this too is, hey, if something is outside your ability, if you're not sure, if it's a critical component, there are amazing bike mechanics in the world. And definitely people should take their bike to a shop and get that pro level service. Just keep in mind, it might take a couple of weeks before they can get to it. My big take home is similar, which is, as you heard here, there's all these little tricks, all these little tips that can make it a lot easier and also be really important. They can be the difference between spending two hours cursing everything in sight, trying to fix something and taking 15 minutes and doing it right. And even more importantly, some of these tips, if you don't follow them, you could be out in the road in the middle of nowhere and have an epic failure of your bike and then you're in trouble. So if you're going to do this work yourself, take the time, as Rob was saying, use these resources. Letter, you, you still have the definitive book to learn how to do it. I will admit, as we were just talking about all the little details of tubeless, I am running tubeless. I'm about to fly to a race. I still haven't learned how to do them right. The message I got there is, you know, I think for this race, I'm going to take it to the shop and have them do it right. And I'll, I'll learn over the winter how to do it myself. And buy the right tools. That's yes. my biggest tip. If you're going to do it, make sure you got the right tools, especially those super cool cable cutters. Well, thanks for joining us. A real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Tweet at us at Fast Talk Labs or join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com. Learn from our experts at fasttalklabs.com or help keep us independent by supporting us on Patreon. For Leonard Zinn, Andy Pruitt, Larry Meyer, Glenn Swan, and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.